0: Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Mark Freestone. He's a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London, an author and an expert in psychopathology. There's a modern fascination with psychopaths. True crime is the most popular single podcast genre out there, and Netflix documentaries about real-life serial killers capture everyone's attention. But why are we so obsessed with dangerous individuals, and what is it that makes a psychopath who they are? Expect to learn what are the differences between a psychopath and a sociopath, why having psychopaths in society was an advantage for a long time, why there are so few female psychopaths, what happens when a university lecturer discovers his own psychopathy in his 40s, the scariest criminals Mark has ever worked with, and much more. Obviously, there are a lot of episodes on modern wisdom about improving your mindset or understanding yourself and the world around you, But I do also enjoy the ones that are just a cool story or just interesting. You don't have the pressure of having to remember it so that you can then wake up and journal it in the morning. It's just something fascinating, right, about some of the most interesting and strange elements of human nature. Today definitely counts as one of those. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom, and MW15 at checkout. all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com modern. That's netsuite.com modern to get your own KPI checklist today. If you want more focus in your life or if you find yourself dealing with an energy slump in the middle of the day where you just don't have the motivation to stay productive, fear not because I do too which is why I spent more than a year creating the world's first productivity energy drink, Newtonic. Honestly, I'm so proud of this. I was involved in the design stage from the very beginning, and we made sure to only include the most heavily researched and evidence-based ingredients in the world at efficacious doses to create the most potent fuel for your focus Ever made. It uses a science-backed formula of nootropic ingredients, including Cognizin for focus, Panax Ginseng to reduce distractions, and L-Theanine to remove any jitters and keep you feeling great. We've got thousands of five-star reviews, and you can see exactly why by trying it for yourself right now with free next-day delivery on Amazon Prime in the UK and the USA. Simply head to newtoniccom wisdom. That's N-E-U-T-O-N-I-C.com/slash modern wisdom but now ladies and gentlemen please welcome mark freestone mark freestone welcome to the show
1: thanks chris pleasure to be here
0: those people that are watching on YouTube, you may notice a uh, slight change in my usual recording setup. I'm still here in Guatemala. Uh, It's taken a little bit longer than expected to get my visa back from the U.S. Embassy. So this is the hotel room locale uh, and I've brought a uh, coconut from downstairs at the breakfast buffet. So all is not completely terrible. Uh, But today, speaking about psychopaths, Why is it that you got into working with psychopaths, Mark? I don't know what compels someone to think when they're in their youth that this is the road that they want to travel down.
1: Well, that's a really good question, Chris. I think lots of people do want to be forensic psychologists. I think, you know, crime scene and CSI and all that stuff has got the word forensic into people's brains as something glamorous maybe. And there's never a sort of shortage of people with an interest in serial killers, quite a few of whom... Tend to be psychopaths, although by not all means all. But I, I didn't, I, I kind of didn't really have any of that. I just sort of fell into it. My 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 job was as a, a sociologist. I was a, a sociology PhD student, and, and the way that I. Um, practice was uh, using a technique called ethnography where you basically put yourself in with a group of people doing something you think is cool and interesting you watch them do it you do a little bit yourself maybe participant observation and then you write about it and my phd was on anti-globalization protest which is miles away but just as i was finishing the local mental health trust opened a new wing in rampton hospital which is one of the three maximum security mental hospitals in the UK uh, for people that were called dangerous and severe personality disorders. So that means basically people who are psychopaths or people who have very, very complex and and usually uh, high-risk personality disorders such as antisocial or borderline personalities, or that means that they're at risk of committing a crime. And and the opportunity came up to do an ethnography there. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Cool. Sign me up. What's a psychopath? And I just sort of (laughs) I just sort of stuck there. So I really did honestly fall into it. Um, and I think early on in my career, I was a little bit kind of running from pillar to post, being manipulated, confused, and, and not generally getting the whole thing. But with time, you know, it, it sort of comes, I
0: guess. Was there a harsh learning lesson early on in your career? Did you, uh, with wet behind the ears and naive, was there anything that you came up against?
1: Uh, definitely, definitely. I think two... Two classic ones is, first of all, um, psychopaths are very manipulative, you know, so when you meet a psychopath for a short space of time, you are often experience what we call a glib and superficial charm. So I often say to someone, if you had to have a, a 10 minute conversation with a psychopath, you probably wouldn't notice anything untoward. You might actually find them quite warm and you know pleasant and certainly charming because that's part of the disorder. I think it comes from the way that psychopaths learn about other people by observing what other people respond well to, but without having that sort of sense of wanting to please others, but simply aping the behaviour that they see around them. So uh, when I was working in the prison service, there was a very very charming and very very manipulative psychopath and i think i wasn't the only person to be deceived by this man but he was also playing in the guitar club where i i played the bass guitar myself so i come to the guitar club and provide a bit of bass backing for all the prisoners doing leonard cohen and white stripe songs and uh, we'd meet there and we would talk about music and things and um i was uh uh sort of i found this guy very intimidating we'll call him paul for the sake of argument it's also his name in my book but he i found him quite intimidating at first but over time we kind of got to know each other and we bonded a little bit over music and he asked me sort of towards the end of my time at the prison uh, whether i bring him in some um sheet music on the internet Now, you think about something like this, and you're like, well, you know, what's the harm, right? It's a few pages printed off of, uh, you know, guitar tablature or something. What could possibly be done with it? it. Yeah, give someone a nasty paper cut. I mean, (laughs) it's not worth the, uh, the time spent in segregation for that, I don't think. So I thought, well, that's, you know, that's fine. Let's go ahead and do it. But, of course, what manipulation like that doesn't sort of come it doesn't start with somebody asking you to bring in you know half a kilogram of cocaine into the prison right it starts with little things like that so as it turned out i i I brought the um the sheet music to the prison and left it in my car because i had other things on my mind i think i also had this sort of twinge of conscience at the last minute like maybe this isn't such a good idea and then i had to spend some time away from the prison when i came back it turned out that not, not only had paul been manipulating several other members of staff in many ways but he was actually having a sexual relationship with one of the female Officers, um, and it had all come out, and and I think you know that this sort of thing happens from time to time. But the problem was that it was quite clear that other officers were aware that this was going on, but hadn't said anything. And when you have that kind of collusion, where everyone's supporting the manipulation to take place it, it really is quite worrying because it means the person at the center the psychopath in this case has fingers in virtually all parts of the organization and everything's very compromised so once you have that happen paul has to be trans had to be transferred out and the, the prison officer lost her job and was quite lucky she wasn't in mental health because otherwise she would have um uh been possibly uh, accused and convicted of sexual abuse so that <laughs> that's one oh aspect you know, manipulation is constantly you know right there when you work with psychopaths. The second thing is that not everybody who's a psychopath is necessarily rock hard, scary and manipulative. Some of them are really, really quite vulnerable and you, you often find yourself getting into the state of feeling sorry for them or f- feeling what we would call a sort of heart sink where you look oh my god this guy's had such a terrible life and it's usually with the younger men i'm a dad now and i think i may have had a bit of a a dad-like impulse at the time oh look at this guy he's had a terrible life and all his you know all his rage is directed inwards but the thing is that Even when people are not outwardly aggressive and difficult like Paul, but maybe like someone like Danny in my book where he just constantly harming himself and can't really see the good in himself. The problem is that is that can actually be quite bottomless, that lack of self-esteem, that lack of an identity. And if you start pouring empathy into it, which I did initially and a lot of staff, I think, never actually stopped. It just keeps being drained from you. You never reach a point where that person has uh, filled up with the empathy and the love that they need because they haven't been able to change the way they think about other people fundamentally. So, those two things sort of, you know, riding the line between being <laughs> alert to the fact you're being manipulated but also trying to give an appropriate amount of empathy and sympathy that's what makes the job really 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 challenging and i think part of the reason that we were never able to fill all the the nursing and the the doctor and the psychology posts that we wanted to to make the program a success but there you have it
0: mm. are there different types of psychopaths i know that in narcissism you have grandiose narcissists and vulnerable narcissists that's yeah. right. Yeah. Is, is there any sort of equivalent in psychopathy?
1: I'm very glad you asked me that question, Chris, because this is my
0: this is my current um, thinking
1: about it. Because I think if you if you look at Paul and Danny, so we have somebody who's uh, got a lot, you know history as a sort of drug enforcer. He killed a man, but he didn't do it directly. He got other people to do it for him, and then denied all plausibly denied that was all the guy. That's right. Oh yeah,
0: yeah as is, as is his character, evidently. Absolutely killed him, killed him with and, some uh, guitar sheet music,
1: <laughs> or got someone else to kill him yeah, with guitar
0: yeah. sheet I yeah, don't yeah. know I don't
1: know and then you take someone like Danny who has a much more sort of um personal crime where he is uh, he forms a sort of a healthy relationship with the local priest, and then uh, when he thinks that the priest is rejecting him for his ideas, he stabs him in the back um it doesn't kill him, but you know it's a really horrible thing to do to somebody who's trying to help you um. And when you think of both of those two men would have met the criteria for being a psychopath, there's lots of argument about where the threshold is uh, using the psychopathy checklist, which we can maybe go into later. But these guys were both way up there, like way over the, the American threshold of 30, which is higher than the British one. And, and to say that those guys are both defined by being psychopaths is, I think, totally unhelpful on a number of levels. And this this debate actually goes back a long way to the 1940s and 50s when Herve Cleckley first published his book on the mask of sanity, how to identify a psychopath. And he uh, quickly... There was a, a debate in American psychiatry about the fact that actually there were two kinds of psychopaths. There were people that we would, would call a psychopath or understand a psychopath to be who always have this sort of, um, it feels like a characterological element. And when I say that, I mean that they were sort of born that way. And when you read books like We Need to Talk About Kevin uh, by Lionel Shriver, or you see people who were just bad to the bone on TV like um, uh, Patrick Bateman or uh, Hannibal Lecter, those are what was traditionally thought of as being a psychopath and there was another term sociopath which referred to people who presented in much the same way as a psychopath so they had that same lack of empathy they tended to lie uh, but they were a bit more violent they were a bit more sort of uncontrolled they were a bit more sort of impulsive and they were termed sociopaths now we don't really use those words anymore but the idea of a sort of primary psychopath. Uh, and a secondary psychopath the primary psychopath being much more narcissistic and much more sort of uh, outward directed and the second secondary psychopath being a little bit more inward directed and maybe being a psychopath simply for them is a way of defending against horrible emotions and feelings and guilt and shame for the things they may or may not have done as kids so that that distinction's always been there and i think if you get really into it you can see how some narcissistic psychopaths and primary psychopaths might be um more or less charming they might be people who are simply you know very very good to talk to and and great con men whereas others and i think this is especially true of robbers just tend to have this really macho image where they think they're on top of the world and they don't need to be charming because if people don't like them they will just bully them into, into into being friends you know so there are many more gradations we can start to make
0: is the psychopath sociopath distinction is that even a thing is that is that just bro science or is is that used as a as terminology
1: it's sociopath was used um but then when the americans published their dsm-4 the way that they diagnosed mental disorder they included in 1983 they included something called antisocial personality disorder and this is pretty much um uh, it's it's just a term for the sort of the behavioral aspects of psychopathy so none of the sort of conning manipulative charming stuff but more the sort of uh, anti-social lifestyle parasitism telling lies lacking remorse breaking the law things like that and that came to be known as sociopathy over time but and i think because of that confusion between you know a, a, a proper psychopath Who's probably made more by the environment than by their genes, being a sociopath, to somebody simply with antisocial personality disorder. And to get antisocial personality disorder is a much more inclusive term. I think something like 80% of people in prison in the UK and something like 70% of those in the USA will have this diagnosis because one of the traits is breaking the law. So you break the law a lot, check. But then, but then you get round to this, well, why do they break the law? Because they've got antisocial personality disorder. Why have they got antisocial personality disorder? Because they broke the law. It doesn't really go anywhere. So it's not a terribly helpful diagnosis. But if you think of it as a sort of a Venn diagram, the vast majority of psychopaths will also have antisocial personality disorder. Um, and, and and most people who have antisocial personality won't be psychopaths. And there's only that sort of interesting distinction of pe- people with a diagnosis of psychopathy who won't have ASPD. And they're more what we like to think of as successful psychopaths, people who haven't been caught, or people who just don't break the law, but they're still psychopaths, right?
0: How much is heritability and genetics? Uh, how much does that play a role when it comes to someone becoming a psychopath? And how much of it is the environment?
1: So that's a tricky one, because we have pretty good evidence that there are, I suppose, heritable characteristics in psychopaths. And in particular, those are what we call the callous on emotional traits. So the fact that psychopaths don't really seem to feel any remorse for what they do, they struggle to have empathy with other people. Um, and they can be very callous, they can do things and they're not really feel sorry for them i think because you know their wiring is different they don't have the connection between uh the the forefront of the the prefrontal cortex of the brain and the amygdala the rest of us do to identify things like you know um disgust fear anger disappointment (laughs) that we sort of live our lives by psychopaths don't really interpret those signals in the same way so they don't feel shame they don't feel guilt and and children as young as seven or, or nine years old can experience or show those traits as well but of course a large proportion of them won't then go on to be psychopaths i think only about 40 percent will ever progress to a point where they have something like a you know enough enough traits to be diagnosable as a psychopath so it's not the whole picture to say it's just it's just genes and then there's you know these wonderful cases like james fallon Press impressive neuroscience in um stanford university uh successful career I'm very interested in psychopathy himself i wonder why and he was doing a study where he exposes people to um uh, unpleasant stimuli like looking at a, a an unpleasant image of maybe wound detail or maybe a pleasant image of a butterfly or something like that and then he measures their their brain response using um i think it's contrast tomography so you look at which areas of the brain are being activated like a ct scan um and then you you look at particular areas of the brain corresponding to how people are with the stimulus that people are receiving so if you look, give a psychopath a, an image of um, i don't know a war zone and you gave the same image to someone who isn't a psychopath the psychopath will show much lower levels of neurological activity in response to that stimulus because they don't recognize that something's necessarily bad so jim's conducting this experiment and he has uh, a lot of uh, clinical psychopaths for his experimental arm and he's looking for some people for his control arm and He's struggling because he's used up all his grad students and he hasn't properly advertised he's like well i'll just scan myself and then you know that'll be fine and then he's looking through the results of the trial and he finds in his control arm a brain scan for someone who really looks very very psychopathic there's virtually no brain activation he's written a book about this uh, which is really interesting and the the scans in the book and it's terrifying this person is completely psychopathic. He's like, oh my God, have I got this wrong? Is this person definitely in the control group? And he looks at the scan, goes to his master key where we see all the people who are taking part. And he realizes that this is his own brain scan. He is functionally a psychopath, uh, studying psychopaths at Stanford University. He's got a wife and kids. He's got a very successful career. Um, And he thinks about it. and, And he thinks, well, actually, when I really think about it, I really I struggle with a lot of the roles that I play in life because I don't see why I have to. Do, I don't see why I have to be a good dad. When people come to stay at my house, I just think, why you, Why am I letting you eat my food? It's my food. Get out of here. I didn't invite you. Who are you anyway? I, and and then these kids are uh, There's also a little video associated to promote the book, and his kids are like, yeah, dad can be difficult. <laughs> he doesn't really do emotion things like all these little tiny clues that add up to a picture of somebody who you know, clearly has some sort of background, uh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, a, a relative or something that would have caused his psychopath to come back, but doesn't have any of the behavioral features, you know, good career, good family life, bit cranky at the weekends, maybe, but that could describe me as well. And I'm far too neurotic to be a psychopath.
0: Would he have met the criteria, whatever it is, 26 or above or 30 or above on the, the scale? Would he have met that?
1: No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't because I think that the the psychopath test, Bob Hare's Psychopathy Checklist Revised, uh, has pretty much an, an I'd like to say an equal split, but actually. The behavioral stuff, so breaking the law, being impulsive, being irresponsible, taking drugs, uh, being what we call criminally versatile, so having a lot of offenses from different categories, all that's in the, the secondary psychopathy factor, factor two, as we call it. And Jim Fallon had none of that, so he never even got halfway up the scale, which wouldn't have been enough for it to diagnose him as a, a clinical psychopath, if you like.
0: Well, that's interesting, because what that shows is that you can have someone who um, has the predisposition, or perhaps the ingredients... Uh, to become a psychopath but for whichever reason they haven't um behaviorally deployed that into the world in a psychopathic way is that the right way to look at it
1: absolutely and and I, i think i can i can i can even support your hypothesis a bit further by saying that all of the psychopaths i've met in you know in clinical practice have lives that are really just messed up and I can mean a lot of different things like that, like some of them are from the middle class, but their relationships with their parents, their mothers and fathers are messed up in, in really sort of uh, sometimes quite twisted ways. And, you know, an example of this is something we call enmeshment, where uh, somebody never quite breaks away from one of their parents. So typically, or let's talk about... Um, Tony, who's one of the cases in my book, he had an enmeshed relationship with his mother, where he was never really able to break away from her emotionally. So even though he was in his late forties when I was working with him, and his mother would come to visit, often they would part with quite a lingering kiss on the lips. And, and I used to get all of these, um, you know, dis- very upset nurses who'd been supervising the visit, saying, "Oh, they did that thing again. You know, what are we <laughs> going to do? We have to address this." And and sort of, you know, visits in hospitals are quite. Sacred, so we we can't nest it. But it really did freak people out. And and the way that uh, you know he seemed to sort of function or do the things he did just to sort of please his mother all the time was really interesting. in the way that it sort of overrid his his own personality, it sort of it meant that he his own personality. You know, who who are you, Tony? And he would really struggle to answer that question as well. He was a very good con man. He was very psychopathic, but none of those things really make a person. Who they are, and I think one of the reasons that he was such a good con man is because he could play any role, because he wasn't really playing a role. That was him. He lacked a sort of, you know, I'm Mark. I'm an academic. I'm neurotic. I do very strange things in my spare time, like read about, read and write about psychopaths. That's who I am. But for Tony, there wasn't that sort of core. He didn't have anything that wasn't the slick con man. Yeah, there's and no that's really no concrete
0: strange. sense of self, is there? He's very very malleable. If you were to if you were to design the childhood to activate the uh, psychopathic genetic tendency, what would you what would you have happen to a child?
1: That's an interesting way around of asking it, Chris. But I'd say you've got you've got a lot of options. Unfortunately, you've got um, so we, let's start thinking about someone like Tony. Where does enmeshment come from? And I think enmeshment comes from well. In Tony's case, there's two things. First of all, a father who's very um, very uh sort of very potent very present so the father was a con man as well a very successful one considerably more successful than tony because i can't find any record of who he was or who never being caught but there we go um uh and and then uh the father in tony's case disappeared so once it, if a father leaves a kid particularly in sort of you know the pre-teen teen years uh they can become very very um I guess, uh, in, in embedded in the kids' memories as like a perfect dad. Yeah, they, they didn't stay around long enough to fuck it up, basically. So in that case, the relationship turns very much towards the mother because that's the only parent you've got left. And in this specific case, I think the mother also um, tended to be very, very overbearing. She didn't want to separate from her son. She wanted him to be around all the time. She wanted to have almost like an adult intimate relationship with them you know with not necessarily sexual but having that sort of you know that that same level of intimacy like we cannot part we cannot be different from each other and if you look back at some of the early psychoanalytic writing from sort of the 40s 50s and 60s this is all very much identified very strong patriarchal figure um, and potentially like overbearing, over-enmeshed mother as well. There are lots of people talk about Ted Bundy as being the sort was of nice... I literally about class. to
0: say the same thing, because his yeah, mother yeah, was still, yeah. at the trial, had this sort of angel boy, my, my beautiful, perfect child's vision of him.
1: Right, and and that, and it, so there's that, and there's also the fact that you know I think his father was not particularly somebody of merit, but his grandfather was a hugely sort of paternalistic, overbearing, dominating figure in his life, and uh, he there were all these sort of signs that would encourage somebody to to be psychopathic. I don't know about, but this is the interesting thing: is being a psychopath doesn't necessarily make you a criminal like Jim Fallon, right? You, what pushed Bundy Bundy to commit his crime specifically is a different question, but certainly being a psychopath and not having that same level of moral restraint could make it easier for you to commit crimes like that. The other, if if we think a little bit about what we talk about, sociopathy as well and secondary psychopaths, I think they can be much more formed by an environment that's just very abusive and harsh. And I remember uh, somebody I worked with in the UK, actually, who was very much a a sociopath, a secondary psychopath, so somebody who wasn't charming, wasn't particularly cunning, wasn't very glib, but was very antisocial, uh, a very remorseless um, uh, and very callous, you know, did bad things. A lot of people didn't feel bad about it. He, he, he recounted this, this episode that still stays with me. He's not in the book, but he's just a very interesting character. And, and he was 12 years old and he was, um, uh, his dad was very again very dominant but he and and his dad wanted him to be tough you know so he gets into a fight with some older boys and this guy was you know even in his 40s very cheeky and sort of like to push boundaries so he probably said something a little bit out of his station so much group much older boys chase him alone down the street and he knows he's going to get everything beaten out of him if he stays around so he runs home bangs on the door his dad opens the door and says what is it uh jim and jim says oh these these guys are chasing me they're going to beat me up dad you've got to help me and he says no sort it out yourself it'll make you strong and closes the door in his face the other guys arrive beat him up right side right outside his family's front door and he never forgets that but he doesn't remember it as i would which is my god wasn't your dad an awful bastard rather as his dad making him tough and this being a good thing that, you know, his dad made him realise that at the end nobody's got your back. I was just like, that's an awful lesson to learn from that story. But nevertheless, if you are brought up like that, then you're going to develop something like a psychopathic defence because feeling emotion and trying to think about events like that in terms of what they mean for you as a person, it's going to be really hard. So better just not to think about them emotionally at all. Better to distance yourself and act like a psychopath.
0: Have you got any idea why psychopathy is adaptive? why it would have evolved at all so uh,
1: the, the, <laughs> we, we often think about this about personality disorders of all kinds because they they're chronic they don't go away um i think the way that we think about personalities or in terms of antisocial narcissistic borderline histrionic isn't terribly helpful because it suggests that there's sort of a, a typical psychopath or a typical narcissist or a typical um, schizoid person and that is very rarely the case. These people are often very, very different, but they do have these sort of core features. And I think the thinking is if, if, if particularly you uh, were, if we think back to um, uh, let's say Vikings, yeah, a society with very, very limited resources, it has to sort of parasitize from other societies in order to gain the resources it needs to proliferate, right? To, to start new colonies, to expand. So uh you know, we both lived in uh, Newcastle for a while on Lindisfarne. The monastery there was very rich and very prone to they raiding got fucked by up. Viking invaders. <laughs> they got fucked Absolutely. Up. And they they were sacked and they were murdered and all that stuff was taken. They kept coming back, bless them. And I think, you know, there's some sort of period in the, the 16th century where the Vikings came four or five times a year. And in order to do that, to be able to, I mean, you know, anybody can do something terrible but to be able to do something terrible and then do it again and i think this is where we start to think about post-traumatic stress disorder it's literally the case that some offenders in prison have done such terrible things that they've traumatized themselves so when they sort of say i don't really remember the offense in some cases they might be telling the truth because they they may not be actually able to access those memories but that isn't how a psychopath works because a psychopath won't experience that shame and trauma in response to doing bad things because they, they don't see these as bad things they see i'm going to go and protect my family in order to protect my family i have to provide them with food and i have to provide them with clothes i have to provide them with wealth so that we can have more kids if i have to kill some people to do that it's not a problem because that's what i want to do and this is what we call instrumental reasoning so all that the focus is is on the end yeah the means are totally irrelevant yeah i need to get there if people die or get messed up on the way oh well that's unfortunate. Because you say it's unfortunate, but I don't really buy into that. So having a group of people in your society, not all of them, I should stress, but a group of people in your society who can repeatedly go out and do violent, stressful, traumatic things in service of the wider family is extremely adaptive. And you can actually think of how there are certain models like this for things like borderline personality disorder, people who lack a fixed identity, who require a level of support and steer that just isn't available in our societies anymore today. You can see how genetically that would actually be quite adaptive. But in modern societies where you can't be a violent asshole and you can't be entirely dependent on other people for everything that you want because it's an individualistic society, they're no longer adaptive and they cause problems for people and they also cause problems for the people around them as well.
0: Dude, you blow my mind. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. So if you were to think of a, a typical tribe, your Dunbar hundred person tribe or whatever, as like a football team, you need a goalkeeper. And your goalkeeper has a very specific role to play. Now it wouldn't the team wouldn't work if everybody tried to be a goalkeeper. Now the same thing is happening here. So I had um had a really good discussion about narcissists a couple of years ago. And in that, it was basically suggested that the um, social ecology constrains narcissism, that if you have too many narcissists, it becomes so chaotic within your tribe that it can't continue to to work. So not only do you have social norms which restrict sort of narcissistic tendencies, but narcissists are probably killed at a higher rate. Than non-narcissist people, and I'm going to guess that psychopaths—it's like a high-risk, high-reward strategy of of existing. So you're more likely to die, but you're also more likely to become the billionaire or or the, the chieftain of the tribe or something like that, which is a lot of the time why people point the finger at presidents and say that they're they're a psychopath. So, but that's so interesting to think that individually as a person, psychopathy, whether it's adaptive or not, is kind of up for debate, but for the tribe overall, having a few psychopaths or maybe one or two psychopaths per group is actually like having a very specialized weapon or a tool that you can deploy into certain, certain circumstances. And then if you scale up to the size of, you know, the Vikings, I don't know how big that was, but I'm going to guess perhaps in the thousands, you may be able to condense down a, a boat, a long boat of 30 psychopaths with a couple of non-psychopaths, and you can send them over to Lindisfarne to sack them and, and, and come back. That's so good.
1: Yeah, and I think just to, to add to that, it's a, the other thing about psychopaths is they have terrible risk-reward reasoning, particularly socially. So if you, you know, if you play a, a game of poker with a the psychopath, they'll continue to, to bet outrageously um, based on very, very bad cards. And I think that, that's really interesting that psychopaths are such good con men in some cases. You know, they can actually carry that off. They can play brag very effectively. Um, but. If you have somebody who can't make those risk rule calculations, think if I go off to Lindisfarne, they may have got wires and stationed, you know, Celtic soldiers all the way around the edges, and we're going to go there and we're going to get fucked up. They won't think of it in that kind of way. All they'll be focused on is the potential reward. The risk is irrelevant to cyclists. We've shown this again and again in research literature that they just don't, you know, they don't factor that in. And also, if you You know, again, I was talking about trauma. If psychopaths come back from these raids and they're not traumatized, they can just go and do it again and again until they're all killed off. And I think with the the example you were using of of narcissists, again, there is sort of like, you know, a sense of maybe a critical mass or maybe a point to which um, those kind of traits are valued by society, but only up to a point. You you know you you can only be as much, so much of a narcissist before it becomes intolerable for society, and I think that changes over time. I think the amount of, of narcissism that will accept shifts quite a lot. Um, I'm not necessarily in the so I think about narcissism as a clinical condition. And when I read stuff from the United States about there being an epidemic of narcissism, I've recently written an article that got quite a lot of attention that says that's not how it's not helpful. I think you've someone got that to likes really to take be...
0: selfies and post them on Instagram. We're not we're not talking yeah. about that.
1: No, because we need to draw a line between... I think we all have, we all need a bit of what's called narcissistic supply. We all need a little bit of... Uh, telling that we're good Self-pride. people, that we've done right things. Yeah, that we're important, right? And if we don't have that, then our self-esteem drops and we feel terrible. Um, and and narcissists, particularly grandiose narcissists, don't have that need at all because they're so absolutely convinced that they're they're right, that it's, uh, <laughs> it's a sort of a non-issue. So like with psychopathy and narcissism together, and there's a lot of correlation between the two, I should say, so a lot of the sort of more grandiose narcissists can also have psychopathy and, and vice versa. Um, I think there is a limit and i think that if we think about stephen pinker's work on the reduction of violence in societies over time these aren't societies that value the, the traits and the qualities that psychopaths have but i'm sure that there were such societies at many stages in our past
0: who was that guy that tried to get someone to buy the eiffel tower
1: <laughs> i do know who you a french comment some time ago i do know who you mean but but that that so someone like tony um that, that's that's an old con uh, you know selling off uh old, old um uh of the world or, or, or structures that have you know qu- had quite a few years on them and plausibly could be ready to be decommissioned and replaced with something better that's one of the oldest cons in the book is you try and attract investors into this great opportunity and you're basically selling you know Selling the Eiffel Tower to someone who's gullible enough to believe that it could be up for sale, and that's all about that. That's all about the graft, right? That's all about how you present yourself as a plausible salesman. So someone like Tony in the book, you know, he's he's got the best suits, he's got his own bank, he's got a chauffeur, he's got a Mercedes, stretch Mercedes Benz, all things that he's obtained through very dodgy means, but nevertheless, you know, (laughs) when you start signing checks from your own bank, people start to pay attention, and if you've seen enough, and I think with Tony's case, he'd seen enough from his dad about how you get people to buy a con, it's very difficult, because... This is what, um, I don't want to get too technical, we call this malignant pseudo-identification. So you see what somebody wants in a situation, you learn from watching other people in the same situation fall for the con. And you think, why do they fall for the con? And you're not thinking emotionally, you're thinking they fall for the con because they want this. So if I can promise that plausibly, then I can pretty much take them for everything they've got because once I have them uh, believing they're going to get, you know, a 10,000% return on their scrap of the Eiffel Tower, (laughs) That <laughs> you know they're, they're finished because the psychopath will keep doing that, that scam over and over again. I, I work with a, a guy who posed as a police officer and he would go into people's uh, flats and, and offer to move their jewelry and money to a safe place in the flat. Um, I'd say it was, you know, obviously a secret police procedure and he'd tell them where he was going to leave it. He'd take it, put it all in a a police marked bag and then walk out of the house and then tell them to check after he's gone. It was all there. But of course, when they checked, it wasn't there and he wasn't a police officer. so There was no way they'd track it down. And that, you know, isn't a particularly complex scam. But what is amazing is the fact that he had something like 600 instances of the same scam on his rap sheet, like 600, just unbelievable numbers of, of, of sort of cons that have gone down in this guy, and how good he must have been to be able to identify people who would fall for this and carry it out again and again and again. So it really is quite a sort of remorseless um, rate of success once they get the graft right, you know?
0: What's interesting to me is that psychopathy, perhaps for a long time throughout human history, let's say maybe the last, 10,000, 20,000 years has been pretty useful and then for the last hundred, two hundred, three hundred 200, 300 years it's now no longer adaptive it's now a big problem and um, it's kind of strange that we may have like culturally competed psychopaths out of their place in society <sighs>
1: I wouldn't go too too far with that. I mean, I think there's still a lot of places where psychopaths can flourish to a degree. I think the difficulty is that we have to think a little bit more carefully in the way we define psychopathy, particularly about whether things like aggression, violence, and antisocial behaviour are necessarily part of that. And if you think about, I don't know, I'm sure we can all imagine some recent political figures who've been diagnosed as psychopaths. Are they aggressive? Are they antisocial? I mean, they're very self-serving, I'm sure, but those those descriptors don't really define them so we need to think more crisply i think about what it is that makes a psychopath and we need to do that without thinking about behavior because the factors that drive behavior are very very complicated i there's a uh, colleague of mine kerry danes forensic psychologist has also written books about her work and she says i know a guy who is a murderer they've killed i think about 15 people in their life's life. Uh, lifetime, they've uh, uh, killed women and children, including in that total, but they've never been to prison and they're not a psychopath. And this person is, of course, a, uh, an SAS commander, special forces commander, who does this as part of their job. Now, that behavior it's possible this person is a psychopath sure you know my colleague didn't think so and she's quite experienced so it's possible this person is a a psychopath but that's sort of irrelevant here because the reason that they're doing these things is not because they are instrumentally driven it's because that's their job and it's their function in life to do that so we can't really infer psychopathy from behavior and we need to start moving away from that way of defining psychopathy and think much more in terms of the sort of psychological emotional traits that people have and if we were able to do that well, I guess the corollary is that we have a lot more identify a lot more psychopaths in probably politics, used car sales, possibly chief executives. Is it true? Stock does, traders, but
0: does, does that um, that sort of folklore thing about one percent of the the population are psychopaths is that true? is there any links to that? Yeah, it's less than that,
1: but, but um, we did uh, in the two thousand adult psychiatric Mobility survey, which is a representative survey of. Um, people in the UK, uh, which there isn't currently an equivalent of in the USA, but there are some other surveys you can use to, to estimate it. Um, we actually included the, the PCLSV, the screening version of the psychopathy checklist, which you don't need to do a long interview for. Uh, and we looked at the proportion of people who were diagnosable psychopaths in the UK household population is about one or 0.4 to 0.6%. So about one in 170, 200 people w- would have been diagnosable as a psychopath. Um, which is still, actually quite, higher than I would That's have still
0: quite Yeah, yeah. Lot.
1: and if you think you know they tend to get banged up with quite high propensity and that we did also find that group the group of successful psychopaths who didn't have long criminal careers but um what was interesting about it was that they did use a lot of designer drugs they tended to have quite high risk high reward jobs they also had declared bankruptcy a lot more often um and very interestingly their annual average household income was significantly higher than people in uh uh, the general population, so they were successful, like more successful than not just getting by, but actually flourishing. Give or take the odd bankruptcy. High risk, high reward,
0: man. High risk or high exactly. reward. Uh, why exactly. is it? Why is it that there's so few female psychopaths?
1: Well, I think that 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 sort of that part of this is recursive. Like, if we are judging psychopathy on the basis of behaviour. Um, male men are more anti so they have more there are more antisocial men there are more men who go to prison there are more men who meet the criteria for juvenile delinquency for criminal versatility for poor behavioral controls and therefore there's sort of a bias factor in using something like the psychopathy checklist because we use a lot of behavior that's just more typically associated with men um, there are female psychopaths in, in my book i talk about um, Angela Simpson who presents you know, very much as a really seriously high-scoring male psychopath. Very. What, what, what does that mean? So that means that on the psychopathy checklist, she would score in the mid to high thirties. You know, there's very few of the items that she doesn't 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 hit. Uh, very glib, very superficially charming, very manipulative, because she manipulates a, a disabled man into her apartment on the premise of sex, and then tortures and brutally murders him over a long, long period of time. So it's a really gratuitous, unpleasant offense. Um, And I think actually when uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was starting to think about Killing Eve, she wanted to start thinking about psychopaths. She saw these interviews on TV and she was like, that's amazing. And they are really – that's really, really masculine presenting psychopath traits. And there's a sort of – it's a literature that sort of how people think about female psychopaths that there isn't really – there isn't really a sort of clinical basis for like we don't have a lot of female psychopaths so we're kind of guessing here but people think of female psychopaths as more emotionally aggressive using people as cat's sports something of something like um dangerous liaisons uh, where you know the marquess uses people around her to do the dirty work so she can manipulate people but can do it behind the scenes um that's sort of the archetype but again if, if you were doing that successfully, you wouldn't necessarily get caught for it. And and secondly, of the, the 2000, we commissioned like 2000 beds for male, male psychopaths in the UK, dangerous and severe personality disorder, and then 40, 40 beds, 40 beds for women, of which 15 were only ever filled, and a lot of the rest were just decommissioned. So the profile of women who we would be able to use to say a, a research population as female psychopaths is very, very small, and we don't know enough to sort of say, well, the archetypal female psychopath is like this. The evidence that we do have is that psychopathy tends to be invariant, but then you can't have behavioral invariance and one of the behavioral factors is aggression or antisociality, for example, because we yeah. know those are biased towards men.
0: I suppose as well that if you have aggression and beating someone up or killing somebody is such a obvious red flag for you to identify a psychopath, whereas... It must be easier to get away with manipulating people, doing the cat's paw type thing, you know, the femme fatale type, but without perhaps the physical aggression, because fewer people are going to report the fact that they were conned by a woman and blah 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 blah. Yeah, that's. I mean, what you're saying is, if you are going to be a psychopath, make sure that you're a woman first, because it's going to be easier, on average, to get away with it. Uh, But what? what, Explain the story of that lady, because that was really that was really surprising what she did to that man.
1: Well, uh, this is a, uh, this is a, a, again, a a very psychopathic trait of um, a sort of grandiosity. So believing that you are the, 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 you know, the center of the world and your decisions are the right ones to always make. And she, uh, she worked as a sex worker and a waitress and she had, um, she knew a guy in the community around her who'd been to prison for a while. And um, they, they had a sort of on off relationship. Thing And he was, you know, he probably destroyed his body with drugs and alcohol and other things. And he was sometimes used a wheelchair to get around. Um, And then one day it turned out she heard, I think, from a third party that this guy had said um, that he'd informed on one of his uh, colleagues uh, for criminal behaviour to the police. And she sort of, from this, you know, idle conversation forms an idea that she's going to kill him. So she persuades him to come and meet her and then she's sort of, you know, quite tantalizing and, and, and sort of sexually provocative uh, and gets him to come back to her flat and leaves his wheelchair at quite some distance in the stairway. So it doesn't look like, away from the stairway, sorry, so it doesn't look like he's come in there. And then, you know, brings him into the, the living room, sits him down in front of the TV, then ties him up while he's not got his wheelchair can't really get away um, starts torturing him driving nails into his skull and he, he lives for about sort of seven or eight hours through this and only and dies in the early morning after the end of the ordeal and then she gets her current partner to help her take the body that says dismember it burn it and get rid of the evidence um, all because she doesn't like she says she doesn't like snitches and, and if you there's a lot of youtube videos available of her being interviewed by some of the american tv channels and it's quite chilling the way that she presents this, you know, somebody says, would you do it again? Said, Hell yeah. Without a second's hesitation, you know, really actually just aggressive. It's just aggressive the way that she presents and very, very remorseless, callous, um, uh, uh, just, just, you know, pretty typical male psychopathy. Um, and that's quite rare. In a, f- a female presenting, or sorry, a fem- female presenting with psychopathy, but there are elements to it that fit with the stereotypes. Like she, you know, she doesn't just dispose the body on her own. She gets her boyfriend to do it, and then gets him to keep stum with some sort of promise. You know, there's the sort of sense of, you know, she's using sexuality to bring somebody up to be uh, to be murdered. Maybe uh, some. I, well, I can't think of any of the uh, the, the male psychopaths I've worked with as doing that. Although some of them would um, attack sex workers. So it's not
0: uh, Who was that one in America book? was it the night stalker was he the one that was going around killing the endless numbers of Oh no there was the the Yorkshire Ripper in the UK was someone that was almost exclusively working on uh, sex workers right
1: Yes 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 that that's right and there was a um uh, I've worked with, a, uh, a, uh, I think he, he would qualify as a serial killer. I think he had two, three offenses. So would target men in toilets, cottaging locations in London and, you know, bring them back, uh, get put them in a cubicle with the premise of, of sexual contact and then strangle them from behind. Um, and again, very, very, very psychopathic because you've got to have that charm to get people to do what you want to do. And some of the other you know, some of the robbers I work with, like I said, just, they just—they don't have the graft that you couldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't trust this man as far as you could throw them, right? So you'd never be able to to sort of trust them in a situation where you are vulnerable. There has to be a sort of something disarming or uh, seductive about it. Yeah, so you
0: need—they uh, need the charm to offset the ick factor that people feel when they're around them. How often is it? How often does sex come into this? I, I was watching. Um, who was the dude that dressed up as the clown in America? That clown killer. You you know the one I mean. Come on, people are screaming it into their. So I'm,
1: te- I'm terrible. I'm, te- I'm people terrible. People are screaming on it killers.
0: into their airport. I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it. Um, there was this guy who was regularly killing people. He's one of the most famous serial killers. Clown, clown, serial. Killer. John Wayne Gacy. John oh, Wayne Gacy. Right, Gacy yeah, yeah. right, like I said, I'm terrible with serial killers. So. Um, One of the things that he it it seemed like he did was he seemed to be sexually attracted to uh, some or many or all of the boys that he killed. It was mostly guys that he killed, might have been exclusively guys that he killed. But it seemed like he had a a self-hatred of his own sexuality. It seemed like his shame was one of the uh, compulsions that caused him to do that. I'm just interested by how much, you know, we've talked about some of these killers going after sex workers, John Wayne Gacy here almost killing in response perhaps to his own uh, sense of guilt or shame around his sexuality. How often does sex seem to come into it?
1: So yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, I guess I'm just hesitant to, to say that psychopaths have a particular pattern of offending behavior because they, you know, it really... The the range of offences we had in somewhere like Rampton was very, very broad and it included child sex offences. But um, one of the interesting things about Rampton was that uh, nobody in a hospital, you don't disclose people's offences. So nobody knew what anyone else had done. So we had this really interesting dynamic between two old friends who were guys who were in their fifties when i was there so you know 20 years ago this they'd be quite old now um and one of them was a child sex offender and you know very sort of overweight not not particularly appealing person but his best mate was someone called tony or something and t- <laughs> tony was in the hospital because he killed and dismembered a child sex offender and it was really interesting that these two had such a sort of positive dynamic um that they uh, uh, you know didn't know simply because they didn't know each other's offenses um so it, a real range of men in this same ward with very very different offenses and i i think the thing about where there was that it seemed to be that where there was a sexual element uh, psychopaths are quite sexually promiscuous they don't kind of have maybe the same scruples or strong feelings about their what their partner should be or look like that the rest of us do. So they tend to be very promiscuous, but they also tend to target partners in a way that would suggest like a sort of marital type relationship. So they don't just sort of randomly go off and pull people and, you know, have sex with them and then leave them. They tend to try and pull people into a more intimate relationship, but only with the goal of satisfying their needs for comfort, intimacy, and perhaps also, you know, things like money and, um, uh, safety so you you know you live with someone because they're your partner but not because you're really interested in ever having a long-term relationship simply because they are meeting your instrumental goals immediate instrumental goals so this means that sex becomes quite a sort of currency for psychopaths which is something i would say but the thing is then you, uh, the criminal justice system gets very very black and white about what exactly takes place in the index offense you know and if you rape someone then kill them it's likely that the crime prosecution service would go for just the murder as the crime rather than murder and rape, because then you've got two cases to build, two charges to consider, two lots of evidence. You just go with the murder. So some of the crimes that people or that I would have understood and as being murder might well have had sexual elements that were not necessarily present in Maybe the description of the offence, and it could be kept secret because they were never charged and convicted of, you know, a sexually intended murder. An example was a um, man I worked with in special hospitals who murdered murdered a woman by inserting a a, a sharpened um, a broom into her uh, into her vagina, and it, it's just you know horrible way to go. and And he was uh, uh, convicted of murder, which meant that he had protection from all of being perceived as a, I'm so sorry, being perceived as a, a sex offender or a nonce or anything like that and he 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 was also quite grandiose and quite manipulative and he, he used his status as a, a violent criminal, a murderer, to avoid being targeted as a sex offender and this is all about I guess sort of the hierarchy of offences in prisons and why people present themselves in the way that they do um, but it was a little bit chilling that you know this was clearly a sexual offence but he got away with being judged in that way because it's been classified as a violent one by a sort of slightly arbitrary system
0: that's so interesting the fact that because what the criminal justice system is actually looking for is is a conviction and if you've got a conviction of murder presumably that you're, you're going to be in there for so long that adding rape on top of that is is kind of kind of pointless kind of doesn't really make any sense so yeah uh it's also I, every time that i speak to somebody that works in prisons or with criminals and stuff like that this hierarchy of offence um always seems to come up and i suppose that beyond like your net worth in the the prison has a little bit of a bearing on you but not tons because you don't have your money with you you know, your possessions or your house or the clothes that you wear or the watch that you have, all of that stuff's been stripped away from you. Your job title, your qualifications, your education, your family, you know, all of this stuff really doesn't really matter. So, one of the few things you have that can quickly identify where you sit in there is what's on the rap sheet.
1: Absolutely. And, and this leads to, you know, these very bizarre hierarchies where often, as I said, sex offenders are at the bottom. Yeah, they're vulnerable prisoners often we spend a lot of time and, and sort of thought in the prison service protecting them and at the top is you know the, the 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 violent criminals um say murderers or people who've committed attempted murder which can be very misleading and at the very top of that are the robbers because the thing about robbing someone is this pretty definitely you know indisputably a violent offense and maybe you did you know maybe you did or didn't um kill someone i love that. Uh, in a prison break the the guy gets himself into the prison by being a robber because you just all you have to do to rob someone is threaten them with a weapon right plausibly so you walk into a bank with a gun make some sort of unspecified threat you're a robber um, and that, you know, that goes a long way from sort of somebody who is maybe a serial robber who targets people very aggressively and lo- looking for an excuse to harm them to someone who makes a sort of botched attempt because they're a drug addict to hold up a, um, a, a convenience store or something and is busted and charged for a very serious violent offence. Very, very different. But, but robbers, the group of robbers contains, for example, a lot of psychopaths. A lot of psychopaths.
0: Has anyone tried to cure psychopathy?
1: Yeah, a lot of things have been tried, Chris, but um, it's a pretty sad sad tale. uh, In the 60s and 70s, they got quite experimental. They tried things like naked encounter therapy. They tried LSD. What's what's naked
0: encounter therapy?
1: (laughs) So you... Take up, basically you take off all your clothes and this was specifically targeted for psychopaths you take off all your clothes, sit around in a room together talk about you know, <laughs> your life, you're offending and it, there's sort of the, the the idea I think behind it was that if you strip off all the sort of social expectations you find that at heart it was social, society that made psychopaths bad and then the, you know you put them in a sort of primal situation they'd be much better to each other but they weren't and curiously enough it actually made them worse or more likely to be convicted of a violent offence after that so totally total failure on every point isolation tank therapy um and there were a few there've been a few like you know well-meaning but misguided attempts to use like less uh, less directed form so ashworth hospital had a uh, personality disorder ward which had quite a few psychopaths on it and the staff tried to be given a little bit more freedom and i think the staff somehow got the wrong end of the stick about what freedom appropriate freedom was for a psychopath and there was a one of the patients who was there on a transfer um have said that there was or accused the, or told the hospital authorities that there was a, a girl being groomed by the the ward um, patients to come onto the ward and be used for um, uh, you know sex and, and other terrible things and they alerted the hospital authorities and uh, there was an inquiry which found that basically the staff had allowed themselves to be completely manipulated out of the ward altogether so there's also an, an interesting lesson there about putting a lot of psychopaths together in one place, um, which maybe we hadn't learned by the time of
0: DSPD. Who is one of the scariest psychopaths that you've worked with?
1: So we I think thinking about um, uh, think about Paul, I mean he was sort of scary in the sense of interpersonally, you know you wouldn't want to to be with him for any length of time because you you know he might try and manipulate you and he just might try and bully you and and that, that sort of constant sense of threat uh the idea that there might be other people on the ward everyone from patients to prisoners to prison officers might be working for him on some capacity that's a very scary thought as well you never quite knowing who's on your side but i think that th- there are other characters who are slightly more sinister than that characters that you really don't get to the bottom and there was a patient i worked with in lower conditions of security but who'd been up in uh, high security for a long time And he was someone who just seemed to be wired very very differently and, and the way that his wiring worked was that he was deeply unpredictable so you could talk to him one day and you'd have somebody who was quite pleasant and engaged and interesting and then it wasn't necessarily like hour to hour but certainly day to day he could switch into a very very aggressive mode where any questions meant why the fuck are you asking me that and And you you' still thinking of the guy from yesterday, so you didn't know where this new guy came from. And his offending history was very complex, and there was a um, there was a murder in his history and several other attacks on people. and some of it, uh, may have had a sexual element but it was again very difficult to tease out and if somebody's not willing to work with you to think about sort of the psychosexual aspects of their offending you're never going to get to the bottom of those things and i think let's uh, let's call him trevor so trevor a the pleasant one often dropped hints that he was ready to talk about this stuff and then curiously enough trevor b would shut the next day and tell you to fuck off and that would sort of be the end of the discussion <laughs> at least for the next year until trevor a appeared again but i think that this was a case that really affected me and maybe i'm not describing it enough but it that that inconsistency it used to give me nightmares like i used to have nightmares where either he was killing me or i was killing him because working as a clinician with someone like that you get very very frustrated and confused and difficult to organize your thoughts because you don't know who's going to be presenting your Opposite. so i think that's sort of when somebody's deeply unpredictable if someone's predictably nasty that's actually okay but it's like you know that's sort of how trauma works if if, if the, the goalposts change every time you come into work it can really mess you up quite quickly and i think that i would have said was the the case that thinking of sort of generating a sense of fear and anxiety in me that certainly did it the most yeah
0: all right mark let's bring this one home if people want to check out the work that you do where should they go
1: um I I would say you know google me I've got a university webpage and you, you can also find my book uh, Making a Psychopath published by Penguin in the UK and um, Macmillan in the USA it's a short read it's it's not intended to be very heavily academic or anything like that and some of the characters I've talked about today are in it as well so I, I hope you enjoy it if you do happen to find it
0: All right Mark I appreciate you
1: Lovely to be here Chris thanks so much for having me